Fighting the hand that refuses to feed us since 1996, this is Hell This Week. We're going to introduce you to a black nationalist that has a great deal of influence on the United States of America. A black nationalist who sits in one of the highest seats of power within the government of the United States. A black nationalist whose black nationalism is often overlooked, if not dismissed, or even derided by those on the left. That's correct. Liberals and leftists hate a black nationalist who has their hands on the reins of power in the U.S. And that mystery black nationalist is someone who we will be revealing to you in just a moment. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, and today podcast live streaming host as well. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new about you? Uh, just if you heard me yelling OS uh, earlier, it's because I just found out a book called uh, Pan-African Social Ecology by Modibo Kadali that looks great. I really would get him on the show, so I'll send you a link to that as soon as I get a chance. I'm really looking forward to the uh, movie version with the guy who played, uh, uh, I don't know, Andy Kaufman. Jim Carrey, that would be great. Really fantastic. I think that's a great casting for that movie. Next week, a new era of This Is Hell begins as we finally realize our identity as a weekday show. Starting Monday, we will be streaming live every Monday and Wednesday for one hour at 10 a.m. Chicago Central Standard Time and two hours every Tuesday at 2 p.m. on thisishell.com. Shortly after the live stream, you can listen to the entire unabridged and uncensored show podcast at our site. Again, thisishell.com for your listening convenience at any time. That means from now on, you will be able to enjoy your commute if you commute or your lunch break if you have a lunch break, or as a distraction from your job, if, if you have a job, okay, this is getting kind of grim, but you can listen to a new This Is Hell three times a week with our new schedule we're unveiling next week. Four, if you are a Patreon subscriber, do our Patreon podcast exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash thisishell. Then those four hours will be replayed every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago Sound Experiment. We'll also continue to air on Lumpin' Radio 105.5 FM on Chicago's South Side on Sundays at 10 a.m. And we are expanding our schedule on Lumpin'. We'll tell you how that expansion happens and when our new times and dates are as we they are revealed to us. And we'll keep airing on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, KRFP 90.3 FM in the highly coveted 11 p.m. Sunday night time slot that everybody 
can't wait to get their hands on. I'll tell you what this new era means for us here on the show and what it will mean for you, our listeners. On Monday mornings, first ever regularly scheduled, this is Hell, streaming live at 10 a.m. Chicago time, and then podcast immediately following at the same place, thisishell.com. All right, now that we got all those logistics out of the way. Live from late capitalism where... We know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is hell. Our guest this week returning to This is Hell for the first time in almost exactly two years to the day, political science scholar Corey Robin. Corey was on uh, shortly after his seminal 2011 book, The Reactionary Mind, Conservatism from Edmund Burke to Donald Trump and uh, was uh, published. Most recently, Corey was on in October 2017 to discuss the re-release of The Reactionary Mind with new additional content. But that's not why you called, and that's not why Corey is on today. Corey is on to reveal to you who that black nationalist with so much power in the U.S. government is. Who could it be? Must be someone whose black nationalist credentials and bona fides are not noticed or worse, purposely ignored. If it's a black nationalist in power, I mean... What kind of black nationalists would the U.S. government tolerate to be within their midst? We'll have Corey explain when he returns this week to tell us about his new book, The Enigma of Clarence Freaking Thomas. Okay, Corey's book doesn't have the word freaking in the title, but it sure does every time I think of it. Yep, Clarence Thomas is all about Malcolm and the black struggle, but you wouldn't know it if you read his rulings. Actually... His rulings reveal it. It's just that, apparently, nobody knows black nationalism when they see it, especially conservative black nationalism, which is a thing, liberals. Corey teaches political science at Brooklyn College and the City University of New York Graduate Center. Corey's most recent writing includes an article we shared on social media industry outlets this week that appeared at Descent Magazine entitled The Obamanots, What is the Defining Achievement of Barack Obama? That's at DescentMagazine.org. Also on today's show, I've been obsessing about contradictions ever since ever since our interview last week with writer Adam Kotzko on how all evangelicalism is, is a religious rationalization for being a complete dick and not only tolerating but celebrating very unchristlike behavior. We'll also have this week's Rotten History and tell you what we did during our bonus hour of This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. And we'll all find out from Alex what the hell is happening on next week's shows. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is uh, Panatone. According to local.it article headlined Italy's best and weirdest hangover cures, an article we told you we would be citing for the next several weeks as it has plenty of cures we've never shared. Uh, Don't fancy trying Pizzle, that's dried bull's penis, which is another cure, but one we have told you about in the past, and never want to touch alcohol again? Here's a more palatable cure. Hopefully you've got plenty of Panatone, an Italian Christmas cake containing orange, citron, lemon zest, and raisins left over to snack on. Like toast, it is a bland carb, which will help you raise your blood. It's not bland. Have you had a Panatone before, Chuck? Yes, I love it. It's great as French toast. It's fantastic. Literal violence calling it a bland carb, which will help you raise your blood glucose levels and ward off feelings of sickness. And nothing says Christmas like a bland carb. That makes this week's hangover cure, Panatone, with special thanks again to our rotten history researcher and editor, Ronaldo Magaldi, who offered this and last week's cure. Yeah, Panatone, as uh, if you have any leftover, you know, a couple days after thing, or after Christmas, after the holiday season, uh, having it as French toast is absolutely spectacular. And don't think of it as fruitcake. It's definitely not fruitcake. It's way, way better. 
You are listening to God's favorite show, podcast, live stream, radio show, you name it. Prove us wrong. This is hell. I could not get our conversation from last week's show with writer, teacher, and translator Adam Kotzko, who was on to discuss his new N Plus One magazine article, The Evangelical Mind. I couldn't get that discussion of contradictions and double standards out of my head all week. Everything I saw and read and heard for the next several days reminded me of how us folks here in the good old U.S. of A., how everything about us and this country is a walking, talking contradiction. What makes it so the duplicity of evangelicalism would be so attractive, as in Adam's example of being for the death penalty but against abortion, believing all life is sacred, except that one person who you think should fry? What, what would make it so people here in the U.S., would want to follow anything that tolerates such inconsistency and hypocrisy, a nation that as the beacon to the world for democracy allowed slavery to persist for nearly two centuries after the nation's founding. What makes our lives here in the U.S. conducive, our culture, our society so vulnerable to a belief structure in evangelicalism that at its core allows for sanctimonious piety and deceitful pretense? Contradictions are everywhere and everything around us. We live a life of breathing, seeing, smelling, eating contradictions every moment of every day. We are hypocrites, so it's no surprise that a religion embracing hypocrisy would be our most politically influential faith in a country filled with phonies who are unwilling to honestly admit what they are, a bunch of omnivorous, all-consuming, waste-making machines without a care in the world for their gluttony. And if you're going to be good at being a phony, you got to break a lot of rules, a lot of ethical standards, and a whole bunch of logical rationalization in order to break from the horrific stuff the American empire has done during its history. You have to do so much to keep yourself confused enough to not think that all the problems around you are your friggin' fault for not working collectively with the rest of humanity to address the global threats now directly attacking your kids. You must keep that fragile house of cards together because when it all comes crashing down into the realization that your generation sucks for not doing anything to stop everything that's going down and way down fast, when all your blinders are finally pulled from your myopic mind's eyes to see everything you've done, if you survive that realization, you'll likely be emotionally devastated for the rest of your life. And that's something worth fighting against, so you stay in denial and continue to refortify your house of cards, which is now up to being full four full pinnacle decks, even though the rules say that you can only use one 52-card deck. Sure, the conservative will argue there's four less cards in each of the pinnacle decks, but they'll ignore the fact they're using three decks instead of only one, which still puts them 92 cards ahead of their competition, who they are now cheating. Conservatives like their institutions without rules, or at least ones that are easily broken and come without any punishments. They want their capitalism unfettered, and they want their religion unshackled from the historical teachings of Christ in order to give them the moral and ethical elasticity to rationalize their hyperconsumption and disregard their impact on anyone else, even for those who have yet to be born. And they want to believe the myths that disconnect their economics and religion from any impact they have on reality, because that self-examination would reveal their own complicity and the shared guilt of destroying the planet they and those from their era are leaving for their hapless children. And conservatives apparently love their myths far more than reality, or far more than they love their kids for that matter. They love the myth that they are Christian while supporting war and the death penalty, two very unchristlike beliefs. 
But of course, evangelicals believe you being good is blasphemous and that you are trying to act like Christ. So good is punished. Social justice advocates are demonized as being evil for doing something saintly. And doing bad stuff is, well, that's just fine with evangelicals who totally get why their fellow member has all the funniest racist jokes. Because he's a Christian who wouldn't dare to act in the loving way that Christ teaches. Is it any wonder in a country where we embrace our myths, our fictions of American exceptionalism and incense, that we also embrace a faith devoid of meaning, empty of ethics, and consistent with any immorality you can come up with? In a country established on capitalism, not justice, as is evident in the founding documents allowing for slavery to continue, is it any surprise that we long for religious rationalization for our contribution to the destructive forces of capitalism? If we were a nation based on justice, our response to 9-11 would have been lawyers parachuting in with subpoenas as the right fantastically feared, and the establishment media allowed the decision to go to war to be framed. We would have continued to pursue what were called the bond talks with the Taliban and avoiding war talks that were making progress at possibly taking Osama bin Laden into custody but were barely reported on in the U.S. while being getting plenty of attention in Europe, which just happens to be a hell of a lot closer to Afghanistan where the upcoming war would take place, a lot closer than it is to the U.S. Without knowing, somehow, we've agreed to terms of service, an unspoken agreement akin to the way Facebook and their media allies tried to explain away the theft and selling of our private data. We've apparently unwittingly entered into a grand bargain with capitalism here in the States, and that grand bargain is capital will allow us our freedoms, our so-called rights, or tolerate us fighting for them up to a point before they call in the cops. If we give capital its complete and total freedom, its freedom to distract, to dismay, to disorient, to peddle myths and lies, and sell everything that we are, including the most personal of our information to the highest bidder. Sure, civil rights activists faced lynchings, had to fight in the streets for year after bloody year, got fire hosed, attacked by dogs, assassinated with the vast majority of the perpetrators who were fighting against citizens' rights guaranteed by law, never being caught, blamed, or punished. But all money had to do to get those same rights human beings died for was have a billionaire create a lobbying group that writes legislation for lawmakers to put directly into law. And just like that, you've got Citizens United without one Wall Street executive ever getting what? Bit? Killed? Or even having to sit in any bus seat, let alone go through the ignominy of taking the bus? We're not only in denial about our role in causing climate change, we're in denial about the cup we just threw into the recycling that will likely be burned instead of recycled, contributing to the environmental devastation we've convinced ourselves we're not doing. We've in, we're in denial about capitalism and its threat to the planet. We need a religion to keep us happily ensconced in that denial. That's why we're in denial about the immorality and lack of ethics embraced by unadulterated capitalism that celebrate only individual acts which can safely exist outside of society in vacuum sealed from contamination by any other individual act. Evangelicalism is a power in the U.S. because it is a contradiction that does not dare contradict other contradictions. It allows for contradictions, and the U.S. is and always has been nothing but layer upon layer of contradictions. From its inception, the U.S. was a democracy that didn't allow many to vote, enslaving people, which you may have heard is not very democratic. In fact, the slaves didn't even get to vote on slavery. 
The U.S. built racist institutions, and we genuflect at the feet of a political economic system that creates disparity, inequality, and poverty, none of which reflects a democracy or a republic, which is just another form of democracy, no matter what your conservative uncle tells you. Fox News told him, it's not contradictory that the U.S. went to war in Vietnam or Iraq or wherever else the U.S. goes to war. That's how a nation founded on injustice and cruelty acts. It's not contradictory for conservatives to oppose immigration in a nation of immigrants when that nation is established on the foundation of hate that is slavery. It is not contradictory or un-American to elect a fascist, white supremacist, misogynist as president of the United States. That's what a nation founded in hatred based on the capitalist fiction that is race does. There is no contradiction in evangelicalism because there is no contradiction in the United States in that both are nothing but contradictions. They exist because their followers tolerate their contradictions, tolerate their double standards. Because there wasn't an immediate armed rebellion against the very undemocratic nature of the U.S. Constitution, that's where we find ourselves today, in a nation of contradictions. And without those non-contradictory contradictions, this would be, wouldn't be the United States. Unfortunately, with those contradictions, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show. Alex Jerry coming up on today's show. Clarence Thomas, black nationalist. We've got some rotten history for this week. We'll tell you who is on our show next week in our new time, streaming live on Mondays and Wednesdays for an hour at 10 a.m. Chicago time and two hours on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Manufacturing Descent since 1996. This is hell. Clarence Thomas is a black nationalist, and it's not like he's trying to keep it a secret. So why does it seem like it's a secret? Why isn't Thomas's black nationalism obvious to those who study him and report on his rulings? Here to explain what makes Justice Thomas a black nationalist and why it's not as apparent and obvious to us as it is to our guest. Returning to This Is Hell, political science scholar Corey Robin is author of the new book, The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Corey. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be back. It's great to have you on the show, sir. You write that Clarence Thomas is the most extreme justice on the Supreme Court. He is also the most emblematic. How can you be both? How can you be both the most extreme and the most emblematic? And, and does that reveal something to you about at least those on maybe on the right who are on the court? Well, we live in a very extreme moment. Um, you know, the power of the, the right has been consolidated. Um, and we have a white nationalist uh, in the in the White House. Um, so the moment that we're in is extreme, and it's a moment that in many ways reflects a lot of the touchstones of Thomas's jurisprudence and worldview over the years. So I think uh, you know the epilogue of my book is called Clarence Thomas's America, and we are living in Clarence Thomas's America. Why do you think that we don't realize we're living in Clarence Thomas's America? What is the obstacle to that realization and recognition? Well, I think it begins with our view of Clarence Thomas. Um, and this is a view that is pervasive on the left and uh, oftentimes on the right as well, which is that people pay very little attention to Clarence Thomas. Uh, most people think that Clarence Thomas is fairly uh, stupid. They think he doesn't do anything on the court. 
they don't think he has any real opinions, and insofar as he's written any opinions, they think they were mostly written either by Justice Scalia, uh, who's now been dead a couple of years, or uh, by his clerks. Um, this has you know, been a kind of longstanding reputation that Thomas has had. Most people, the only thing they really do know about Thomas, beyond those kind of mistaken stereotypes, um, is that he sexually harassed Anita Hill, um, and that he doesn't really speak very much uh, during oral, oral argument. Now, both of those latter two things you know, are true, um, but they don't really tell you very much about the man. And I think, um, if I'm going to push this a little further, the epigraph of the book is from Invisible Man, um, Ralph Ellison's novel, which is one of Thomas's two favorite novels. And it's the famous opening where he talks about being invisible and how white people um, don't see him and also uh, don't see the invisible man, but also presume that they know everything there is to know about the invisible man who's black. And, you know, I've read this novel a couple of times, and I've, you know, I've always, uh, you know, appreciated it and felt I understood it, but in the course of writing this book on Clarence Thomas, uh, I've begun to really feel the force of that novel, um, not because I agree in any sense with Clarence Thomas or sympathize with his views, but the profound lack of curiosity and the profound ignorance that so many people have uh, about Thomas and what he actually thinks. Um, has been stunning to me. Um, I've had people, you know, I've been immersed in his writing and in and, and his work for, you know, about six years now. Despite that, I had people tell me with great confidence what it is that Thomas's views are and don't even bother to even ask whether or not they're correct about this. So I think a big stumbling block here, first and foremost, is an inability uh, for people to even consider that this man actually has a worldview um, that has a certain amount of depth to it uh, and that can be found in his Supreme Court opinions, of which there are over 700. I mean, just one more thing quickly on this. Most people don't realize this. Thomas writes the most opinions on average of any Supreme Court justice in any given year. Um, so these things are out there. Uh, the people to really um, have a block against even considering what it is this man has to say, despite the fact that he is right now uh, the most powerful black person in the United States. You were just saying that he has done the most writing of any of the Supreme Court justices, yet he is often chided, derided for not participating in oral arguments. You write that oral arguments are somewhat exaggerated in their importance when it comes to Supreme Court decisions. So why the focus on oral arguments by the media and not on the written uh, arguments? And does the media exaggerate the importance of oral arguments? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two reasons. I think one, um, you know, for court watchers, I think for people who are liberal and progressive, you know, there's a real fetish, to be honest with you, uh, about the role of reason uh, and about the ability to kind of marshal your arguments. Um, and where oftentimes, you know, politics is conceived of as in some ways like a law school seminar. I mean, that's what people, you know, many people on the left loved about Obama. He was a former law school professor uh, at the University of Chicago. It's one of the things people, you know, like about Elizabeth Warren. And so there's a fetish, as I say, uh, about that kind of argument as if the legal reasons and the argument one, one gives um, in, 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 in a back and forth are really the things that ultimately explain how you come out on any given decision. Now, a lot of the scholarship, as, as, I, as I say in the book, has shown that that's just not the case. That's not the way oral arguments work. They actually play very little role in the outcome of a decision. 
But we have this, as I say, this fetish in this country and also this, um, you know, kind of belief. I've noticed this now with the, the more recent case on the LGBT, uh, LGBTQ uh, discrimination. You know, people are looking, what does a, a Supreme Court justice say in the oral argument that might be a clue as to how they're going to come out? You know, that's just not, that's not really how it works. So I think that's part of it is this a sort of fetish of, of, of a certain kind of argument and a belief that the, you know, the, the back and forth of argument will produce a result. Um, so that's one part. The other part, I think, frankly, is a certain kind of racism. Um, if you were interested in what Clarence Thomas had to say, it's very easy to find it out. Again, you've got his opinions. They're all there on the public record. They're quite long. You have to wade through a lot of stuff, but they're there. You could listen to speeches. Um, you know, he oftentimes gives speeches. There's transcripts on the web. Um, there's audio recordings. There's video. You can, you can find it all out. He has a memoir. Um, there's a vast public record. Um, so if that's what you wanted, you could do it. But I don't think that's what people are doing here. I think they're trying to make the suggestion that the reason he's silent is because he's too dumb to ask the question. Uh, at Passover Seder, you know, you have, we have a story of the four sons, and one of them is the simple son who doesn't know um, what questions to ask or even to ask a question. And I think that's, that's the real point that people are trying to recur to. There is this uh, belief that because he's so quiet, uh, you know, maybe he's sleeping through the oral arguments, which, by the way, uh, I should point out, there's another justice who this accusation was lodged against, um, that he was sleeping during oral arguments, and that was uh, Thurgood Marshall, who also happens to be the only other African-American justice uh, on the, in, in Supreme Court history. So I think both of those things, the sort of the fetish of a certain kind of legal reasoning and um, a kind of, you know, just basic racism uh, about this man and a belief that he's just, you know, too dumb to ask a question. Yeah, when I read that in your book about Thurgood Marshall, that was really amazing to me. And I, I don't want to get too far off track, and I hate to ask you this follow-up question, but it was just while you're answering my last question, it just kept coming up in my head. What what do you think is the fallout? What is the outcome of having such poor news coverage of how the Supreme Court makes their decisions? What do you think is the fallout to citizens and their understanding of how U.S. justice works? Um, I mean, I think we're seeing it today. Um, uh, there is uh, this kind of false elevation of the court. Um, which, you know, Louis Hartz was a political scientist who wrote this brilliant book in 1950 called The Liberal Tradition in America. And he, taught, he observed this, the elevation of these nine men to be, at the time who were men, to be Talmudic judges who could somehow resolve all our questions for us, nine wise men and now women. Uh, and I think that's one of the the big fallouts is is the, the the false elevation of the court um, to be somehow or another this impartial impersonal uh, decision body that's going to save us. Um, you know, this is just a you know it's a it's a it's a false view of the court, which I think we're beginning to understand as we see five conservative justices consolidate their power and be able to start um, you know really ruling. And, and I'll add one other thing. I think this uh, consequence. The, you know, for all the um, discussion about uh, uh, Donald Trump and the fear of Donald Trump, the, thing, the single most important institution that is going to preserve the legacy of Donald Trump long after he's dead is going to be the Supreme Court. Um, Clarence Thomas is the oldest conservative justice, and he's only 71 years old. He's much younger than Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, and Stephen Breyer. Uh, he could be on the court for a very long time with the other four justices who are young, conservative justices who are younger than he is. They will be there 
to preserve the legacy of Donald Trump. So the irony here is this institution that we venerate in this country as the impartial, you know, face of the law above politics will be the very institution that preserved the legacy of Donald Trump uh, and the current Republican Party um, long after he uh, is gone. We are speaking with political science scholar Corey Robin. He is author of the new book, The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. You can follow Corey on Twitter at Corey Robin. That's C-O-R-E-Y Robin. And you can find out more about Corey at his website, CoreyRobin.com. So you understand Clarence Thomas as a black nationalist. And again, uh, reflecting back on Ralph Ellison's words in Invisible Man, uh, when they approach me, they see only my surroundings themselves or figments of their imagination. So I am certain if that's all we see when we see a black person, then we're not seeing black nationalism, definitely. If we can't see the black person for what they are, we cannot see the black nationalism and that influence over the person. So what is black nationalism as it is revealed in the life, work, or decisions of Clarence Thomas? Because I think when people think of black nationalism, they only think of radical, left-wing, liberal black nationalism. They discount any concept of conservative black nationalism. Right. And so that's the first thing to really begin with. Um, you know, and, and this is hardly a controversial point, um, but it's not really widely known outside of scholars of African-American history and African-American political thought. Uh, but black nationalism has many, many different currents. Some of them are, in fact, quite left wing and some of them are very, very conservative. So that's the first thing to be said. I think the basic principle of black nationalism begins with the assumption that black fate, the destiny of black people, is sufficiently at variance for a wide variety of reasons with dominant mainstream white America that black people's interests and black people's concerns and needs and aspirations cannot be accommodated by by American society, which is white society. And therefore, black people have got to find their um, destiny Uh, somewhere outside of America. Now, sometimes that has meant, and this is the sort of classic vision of black nationalism, um, leaving the United States entirely and going and settling in another country, uh, maybe on the African continent. So that's been one idea. Another has been the idea of creating some kind of sovereign black state within the continental United States that would be independent of America. So these are some of the, you know, some of the dominant ideas, but they don't actually happen to capture what I think has been the more um, widespread um, uh, aspiration, which is to achieve some kind of black autonomy separate from white society, where you had some, you know, if not full sovereignty for African Americans, some kind of modified form of sovereignty. And once you understand that, you begin to see that Clarence Thomas's um, whole story is very much framed within that. Um, he was, in fact, an active uh, black nationalist on the left. Um, during his early years, he was quite active, um, uh, not just in a kind of campus radical sort of uh, superficial way, but, you know, really active, um, you know, firm, uh, uh, firmly ensconced in sort of the black militancy of the late 1960s and the early 1970s. Um, he was at Holy Cross as a student. He was one of a, a, a class of uh, 18 black men who were integrating the university, and they um, were really quite militant and active and did all sorts of things, and he was one of the leaders of this movement. Um, And then uh, he starts moving to the right in the mid-1970s, and uh, what was so fascinating to me 
in, in, in the research of the book is, how, is, is that far from giving up a lot of the basic principles of black nationalism, again, the idea that black people have a destiny and a fate that cannot be accommodated by white America as it currently stands, that black people should separate from white America, um, that there are uh, certain beliefs in black self-defense, including uh, you know, instruments of violence, um, also a firm belief in black men as the salvation of the black race, so kind of black patriarchal vision. All of these things and more accompany Thomas on his migration to the right. Um, it's not as if he gives up those principles. He certainly gives up left principles, but those are quite different, I think, and can't just be subsumed under the heading black nationalism. Do his decisions reflect any support for racial segregation? Do his decisions that he's written on the Supreme Court reflect his backing of racial segregation? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we can start with some of his ideas about education. Um, He uh, has said very clearly that he's very skeptical of integration in schools. And in some of his decisions, he lays out all the reasons why, in fact, black people will do better uh, when they are in schools that are not integrated. Now, I should be very clear here. Thomas is not a supporter of legal segregation. Um, he has problems with the Brown decision of 1954, not with the final decision, but with the reasoning that got uh, the court to that final decision. But it's not as if he wants to restore legal segregation. But as he was asked at his confirmation hearings uh, in 1991 by uh, Senator Arlen Specter, you know, if you're against legal segregation, why doesn't that mean you're for integration? Why does that not mean you're for desegregation? And interestingly, he never answers the question during those confirmation hearings. But on the court, he's given his reasons why he's not in favor of it, which is that he believes that black people will actually do better um, uh, intellectually, politically, economically, when they are separate from white people. And this is in some of his Supreme Court decisions as well. Um, he has a decision on the segregation of prisoners in, 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 in California, uh, where he talks about the kind of racial animosity that exists between black and white prisoners, reflecting the larger society. And what's fascinating about that decision is he uses that exact same argument, and he cites that very same case in his um, opinion about, the, about segregation in the Seattle School District. That is to say, you know, he starts talking about if you bring black and white students together, not only will the, 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 um, the achievements of will, will black students not necessarily do as well as they would have had they been separate, um, but there will be a, all kinds of conflicts that will be generated between them because of sort of pre-existing racial animosities. And he cites this decision, this, excuse me, this opinion from a California prison case uh, that, that he had written. So it's all over. Uh, his jurisprudence. And, and that's just, you know, really scratching the surface. Um, you know, you see all kinds of very, very race conscious arguments deployed in his decisions about something called the takings clause, um, in other decisions on criminal justice. It's, it's really everywhere. You write that in the mid-1970s, Thomas began thinking hard about capitalism, about the relationship between states and markets, particularly as those uh, issues pertain to African Americans. He slowly came to a political economy informed by many of his ideas about race, as well as the history of slavery and Jim Crow. So I'm assuming that Thomas went straight up communist. How would you describe Thomas's understanding of the relationship of the market and the state? 
Okay, so the first thing to be to remember, and this is again something I discovered reading the historiography, is that a lot of black power and black nationalist movements in the early 1970s were themselves uh, experimenting with capitalist institutions. There was a genuine sense of disaffection with politics, um, with mass movements in the streets, with electoral politics, with more radical revolutionary activity, and a lot of black power activists began to think, you know, if we're going to get ahead in this country, if we're, we're going to, you know, transform black fate at all, um, we have to tackle the question of the economy and not get ourselves too involved in questions of politics. And this is in the firmament as Thomas is still on the left. Um, and then in 1975, he uh, hears of a book called Race and Economics by Thomas Sowell, who is a uh, economist, a very conservative economist, um, who also had a Marxist past, as it turns out, and is also African-American. And in this book, uh, which Thomas reads uh, in 1975, um, there's a kind of story about, how, uh, about the role of race and capitalism in America. And the story suggests uh, to Thomas that there's one institution in all of American history that white people have never been able to control completely for themselves. As powerful as white people are, they've always been able to completely control the state and a lot of social institutions. But the one institution they were never able to truly master, that often mastered them in spite of their own wishes and aspirations, was the capitalist marketplace. That was the one thing that they themselves had to submit to. Now, Thomas, I mean, and Sowell and Thomas weren't saying necessarily um, that white people didn't use the market to advance their interests. It was just that they couldn't completely control it. And from that germ of an idea, Thomas begins to develop, um, following Sowell, this notion that capitalism might offer a kind of, um, not a, a full space for, you know, a kind of uh, Ayn Randian individual to flourish who's black, but niches for black people where they can develop their own businesses, where they can hire other black people, where they can develop their own markets. Um, to meet black needs. Now, there's a biographical component to this, which is the huge influence on Thomas's thinking and life was his grandfather, um, who raised him in Savannah. And his grandfather uh, owned his own business in Savannah, and you know, had really was kind of a self-made man. Came, you know, began with nothing, and and ended up being kind of owning a couple of properties in Savannah and having amassed a certain amount of capital. Um, and so his grandfather really, you know, looms large in, in Thomas's story and his memoir and his thinking. Um, and to him, you know, what that means is, even in the face of something like Jim Crow, this heroic black man, and, and I emphasize all three of those elements, the heroic, the black, and the man, um, because those are the pillars of, of Thomas's worldview, was able to carve out a niche for himself, for his family, and for his community, the black community in Savannah. Um, from which you couldn't completely be shielded from white people, but which, you know, you had some sort of separation and protection from white people. Uh, and that, for Thomas, is really the story of, I mean, I, I think the, the chapter I have is called White State, Black Market. Um, you know, the state will and politics will always remain spheres of white domination. There's very little black people can do about that. The market, however, offers to black people, in Thomas's view, uh, and in the view of, uh, of you know, many conservatives, obviously, and many black conservatives, but again, even some black nationalists in the early 1970s, um, the market offers some spaces uh, where black people can develop their own, uh, amass their own capital and wealth and resources apart from whites.
You write that Thomas's ideas about the Constitution are suffused with assumptions about gender and race, about the role of black men and women, which find their way into his jurisprudence. Are Thomas's decisions, do you find within them sexism, even grounded in sexism and patriarchy? Definitely. Um, and when we say sexism and patriarchy, I don't just mean that he has his own sexist impulses or, or, act, you know, or actions, which, of course, we know from the Anita Hill uh, uh, story that he does, but he has a whole philosophy of this. Um, and he has said that the salvation of the black race depends upon black men. And what's so fascinating um, about that is that that's not just sort of a one-off. It really suffuses his whole idea of what the Constitution is all about or should be all about. Now, let me just sort of back up for one minute and be a little bit academic. But, you know, in the United States, we have a very narrow idea of the Constitution. It's the kind of the ultimate laws that constitute the legal order and maybe even the political order of the country. But there's an older idea of the Constitution, uh, a kind of more ancient idea, which is Thomas is indebted to, that the Constitution is really reflects the entire social order. And for Thomas, when he thinks about the Constitution and the entire social order, what he's really thinking about is what kind of social order can be created in this country wherein black men, heroic black men, can find their destiny, not just for their sake, but for the sake of the entire black community. And so in Thomas's ideas about the Constitution, um, this can get very wonky and sort of weedy, so I'll, I'll try to uh, uh, not, get, not get too uh, deep into this. Okay. But... Um, <laughs> but he has, on the one hand, what I call the idea of the black constitution, and this is the constitution that was created out of Reconstruction and the struggle over slavery, the centerpiece of which, for Thomas, is the right to bear arms. Um, and he has a fascinating decision called McDonald versus Chicago, where he rereads the whole history of the right to bear arms, not in the way many conservatives read it, that is to say, oh, originating in kind of white colonial militias fighting against the British Empire or something like that. That's not Thomas's. For Thomas, um, the right to bear arms was a right that was won for all citizens, but particularly for black citizens, in the wake of emancipation and reconstruction. And that the first thing that white Jim Crow, white supremacist America tried to do was to take away guns from black men. Um, so for him, uh, again, this vision of black men as the salvation of the black race, um, there was a revolution in the Constitution through, uh, through the Civil War and Reconstruction that granted black men the right to bear arms. And to recover that right is central to his vision of the Constitution. That's the, of the black Constitution. Then there's a much uh, more disturbing vision, which I call the white Constitution. And here Thomas is indebted to the original Constitution as it was um, adopted in 1789. And here the central, the centerpiece is states, not the federal government, but the states and their right to punish. And this is something that confuses a lot of people when I say Thomas is a you know, kind of conservative black nationalist because he has an awful lot of decisions empowering what we call the carceral state or the, 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 the punitive state. And, and very grisly decisions, I should add, you know, where there's, you know, some, it would, you know, the only word to be used for is, you know, torture of people in prisons and, a, you know, really nasty, horrible abuse. And Thomas doesn't blink from it. And the reason is that he believes, you know, again, back to this idea of the heroic black male, that these men that he valorizes who are going to, you know, protect the black community can only arise under conditions of the most 
adverse constraint, when everything's going against them, something like Jim Crow. And he believes under the white constitution, re-empowering the states, all 50 states, to punish people as much as possible, under those conditions, these virtuous black men will emerge um, like his grandfather and will lead the black community to uh, safety. Right. You're right that Thomas has injected his beliefs into the court, not through any philosophy of a living constitution that is a constitution that evolves over time, adapting to new values and the inclusion of new citizens and voices, but through the original constitution, the constitution as it was adopted in 1789, the very constitution that Thomas acknowledges was written by and for racists and slaveholders, that Thomas has managed to take this peculiar blend of black nationalism and black conservatism and find a place for it in the most unaccommodating and anachronistic vision of the Constitution, that he has managed to fit this alien and intransigent politics into that most traditional and stylized genre of the American canon, the Supreme Court opinion, that truly is surprising and enigmatic. Doesn't one contradict the other? Why wouldn't you want to ground your fight for black nationalism? Why would you want to ground your fight uh, for black nationalism in a document that you recognize as racist? Well, I think, you know, this gets to some of the most um, delicate um, and really sensitive areas of Thomas and of the book. Um, and and I, I could answer at a bunch of different levels. I mean, the first is, um, and again, this is you know pretty well documented, there's always been this kind of ambient, Thomas uses a phrase, ambient fraternity in a different context, but an ambient fraternity between uh, white nationalism and black nationalism. Not all of black nationalism, I, I don't want to be um, you know painting with a broad stroke, but certain tendencies with black nationalism. So for Marcus Garvey, uh, you know, said very forthrightly, the best friend of the black man is the, you know, is the Ku Klux Klan. Um, not because Garvey, you know, welcomed the Klan or embraced its white supremacist terrorist doctrines, but because the Klan made very clear the reality that black people were facing, which is that you live in a white supremacist society that will never, ever accommodate you and your aspirations, your needs and interests. And there's no pretense there. So there's kind of an honesty um, or what I call racial candor, um, a, a belief in that. Um, you see some of that in Malcolm X as well. You also see this in Clarence Thomas. Um, so Malcolm X gives this famous, you know, it's called the chickens come home to roost speech, where he says, um, you know, the, he compares, you know, two types of white people. Um, there's the fox and the wolf. The wolf bears his teeth and shows you exactly who he is. And this is the kind of overt racist. The fox is foxy, you know, is, you know, pretends to be your friend, but in fact is really not. Thomas's images that he uses are the, um, the rattlesnake and the water moccasin, or the copperhead and the water moccasin, I think. You know, one, uh, no, the rattlesnake, excuse me, you know, very loudly announces its malicious intent, and that for Thomas would be the southern white racist Republican. And this is interesting, you know, Thomas was in the Reagan administration, and far from um, just being a kind of blank apologist, he was very forthright about the racism of the Reagan administration. But his point was, it's honest. You know where you stand. Um, versus the liberal, northern, white, urban person um, who is like a water moccasin, who, you know, you don't know the danger is lurking and turns out to be very, very threatening. And so that, I think, is part of the story that there is, um, for Thomas, you know, a kind of clarity about white supremacy 
um, that's very important to him uh, because it breaks all illusions, he hopes, among black people that they could rely on white allies, to use a, 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 the rhetoric that's, uh, that we often use today. They're white liberal allies. They are not, they are not their allies. Um, so that's the first part of that. But the second is what I was just mentioning earlier, that, um, and again, this is some really unsettling, disturbing stuff in Thomas's jurisprudence, uh, which is partially why I, I think people should be reading him. Um, he really does believe that, you know, these conditions of adversity and constraints, such as you saw under the old constitution, the white constitution that was adopted in 1789, where black people, you know, really, um, as Justice Taney put it, Chief Justice Taney put it in the Dred Scott decision, you know, black people really had no, uh, were not citizens and had no place in America, essentially, uh, as free citizens. And he thinks um, under those conditions, where black people are really under the thumb of constraint, um, you will see kind of these heroic black men uh, who will emerge and create sort of enclaves of black autonomy. Um, and that's what makes his opinions, I think, uh, both incredibly unsettling and disturbing, but also quite fascinating. Um, you know, I don't know how many Supreme Court opinions people have read, but they're often really dry as dust. And in Thomas, um, they're anything but that. They really are alive with these social conflicts and grievances and social wounds that are so deep. Uh, and they're all there in his opinions. You're right that Thomas is, is a voice that unsettles. His beliefs are disturbing, even ugly. His style is brutal. I want to make us sit with that discomfort rather than swat it away. This is not so that we adopt Thomas's views, but so we see the world through his eyes and realize, perhaps to our surprise, that his vision is in some ways similar to our own, which should unsettle us even more. How is Thomas's vision in some way like your own? How might our listeners uh, unsettling see their vision in the way that Thomas views the world? So, as I sort of mentioned a little bit earlier, Thomas comes to consciousness, political consciousness, in this moment of great defeat for the African-American freedom struggle, um, which began, you know, the defeat really sets in in the late 1960s, early 1970s. And we've been living in the shadow of that defeat ever since then. Um, American politics for the last half century is inconceivable, I think, without coming to terms with the fact that there was a generation, multiple generations of activists, black and white, who really thought they were going to be able to transform the conditions of white supremacy. And for a time there, seemed to actually be doing it. And then all of a sudden, uh, it be, the, the, the progress began to slow down, then it began to stop, and then it started going into reverse. And we have been living with that experience for a very long time. And defeat is something that we have a hard time talking about in this country um, because, you know, we're a country of winners, um, especially white Americans. Um, you know, we don't, we don't handle defeat well. And what we oftentimes do is we sort of forget about it and then start, um, I hate to use such an academic word, essentializing the condition of defeat. And by that I mean where once it seemed possible to start dismantling white supremacy, uh, it increasingly not only seems impossible, but we sort of forget there was, there was a moment when we thought otherwise. 
And so now white oppression, white supremacy comes to seem like just the eternal truth of the human condition or of the American condition, let's say. And I think that sense is not, um, which I think of in the end as a very conservative idea, um, is no longer a conservative. I mean, this was what the slaveholders said to the abolitionists when they invoked race. The slaveholder said, you know, it's the destiny of black people to remain a subjugated race. There is nothing that can be done about this, and certainly nothing that can be done politically to remedy that. And I think some of that very bleak racial pessimism, for reasons that are completely understandable, given the success of the Reagan conservative revanchist counter-revolution, and now Trump, uh, I think that sense has now migrated to the left, where we, everybody shares this sense of kind of racial despair um, without a sense that that despair was created not by the eternal truths of American history, but by a very successful conservative backlash, by the weakened will of liberal institutions, by changes in capital, by a whole bunch of things um, that were political and that we've forgotten. You write that if Thomas begins from premises that are shared yet arrives at conclusions from which we recoil, that might argue for a closer scrutiny of the steps he takes along the way. One might, for example, accept his claim that the roots of racism are undiscoverable, suggesting that racism is transhistoric with origins deep in our neurons or psychology or some other source, yet refuse to give up the struggle against racism. One might agree that racism is a permanent stain on the soul of America, yet choose to wage a moral battle against what is essential a version of original sin. One might accept his claim that racism is everywhere in time and space, then turn that claim against his defense of the carceral state, though in the name of what sort of anti-racist idea and whether such ideals are or can survive professions of racism's ontological reality remains unclear. So let's go through those premises really quickly. Are the roots of racism undiscoverable? Because I'm pretty sure I found them firmly intertwined with the roots of capitalism. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they're certainly complicated, uh, but I don't think they're undiscoverable at all. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, Edmund Morgan, Barbara Fields, David Brian Davis, we have a, you know, a whole set of institutions um, one of which is capitalism that you meant, but the other which is, was how to reconcile a, a belief in the universal equality of all men and women or of all humanity with the practice of chattel slavery. And it was out of that contradiction that the idea in part of racism emerged, and that also has obviously a lot of connections with capitalism as well. Um, so that's part of having a historical, institutional, political, economic understanding of racism. The problem is today, when you look at it, and I, I see this in a lot of liberal venues, um, there's a notion that racism is rooted in racial attitudes, or that racism is expressed most you know, forcefully through racial attitudes, uh, and that those racial attitudes can be understood sometimes you know, by neuron, you know, tra or neurons, um, uh, ancient instinct to be with your own kind, these kind of deeply sort of sociobiological, cultural arguments that make very little reference to politics, economics, and institutions. I mean, we use the word structural racism all the time. It gets thrown around all the time by the left. But when you actually start listening to what do people mean by that, I think they just mean is that a lot of white people are racist in their heart of hearts. Um, now, that might be true, 
But it also happens to be Clarence Thomas's belief of racism. That's his analysis of racism, is that it is essentially expressed through racial attitudes. And by the way, not only covert racial attitudes, but unconscious, what we call unconscious bias, which is also a very popular view in, among social psychologists about race, that race gets expressed not merely through overt racist statements and actions, but also through unconscious biases. Thomas is there. He's more than willing to accept that belief. Um, and when he was at, you know, and, and but part of not being able to understand a historical root of racism is then if you, if you don't know how racism was created and when and why and how, it becomes very hard to imagine how it could be uncreated. And that's the flip side of Thomas, which is a belief in the permanence of this kind of uh, racist white supremacy, that it really probably cannot be dismantled. Um, so I think that's the first assumption. What would they, if you said you want to walk through them all, but um, that's right, the first one. Because then you would say, uh, so is racism, I think you've just touched on this, is racism, or what happens when racism becomes a permanent stain on the soul of yeah. America, is seen as something that cannot be overcome? Right. And then, and, and I think the, the addendum to that, so it cannot be overcome. Now, I think for people on the left who would say that, they would also say, nevertheless, you have a moral obligation to oppose it. And so anti-racism really becomes a kind of um, very moral and almost Christian ideal in the sense that you don't really think about what are your institutional levers, what are um, the mechanisms and coalitions you can build to battle this? What are the people's interests you can appeal to in order to battle racism? No, you have to strip anti-racism down to a pure uh, virtuous belief in the value of anti-racism on its own. Because if it's contaminated by anything else, like economics or something like that, um, it's, you're going to sully the purity of the ideal. And, I, you know, on the one hand, I, I, there's a long moral tradition that says that, you know, the definition of a moral argument is that it's unsullied and uncontaminated by things like self-interest. Politically, that tends to be a non-starter. I mean, there is some portion of the population that will go by that, um, but it tends to be pretty small. If you're going to have a political program to take on race, racism, you have to have more than the purity of the moral argument. It has to be connected, um, and it, it can't just be a narrow group of people. Um, you've got to do what uh, the black freedom struggle did, and which doesn't begin in the 1960s or the 1950s, in, you know, just in the South. In the North, in the 1930s and the 1940s, black activists um, uh, and northern uh, liberals and trade unionists start getting together and really start having the battle over white supremacy in white spaces, where the argument is not simply that white supremacy is bad and you shouldn't be a racist, but that also white supremacy is harmful, uh, both to black and to white people, in all sorts of ways, and you start making those connections. And it was, you know, that's the kind, that's what I think of as a political coalition um, that can take on racism. Uh, Ian Haney Lopez, uh, the scholar out of Berkeley, has some similar arguments about how to connect um, questions of racism to other issues as well. Uh, and so I think, you know, that's really important. And I get, I get nervous when the left bases its anti-racism on, you know, just the purely moral obligation to resist something that the left will say in the end cannot be defeated, because that seems to me you can't build a political coalition for that. You just can't build it. 
you write the story of Clarence Thomas as the story of the last half century of American politics and the long shadow of defeat that hangs over it. The defeat not only of the civil rights movement and the promise of black freedom, but also of a larger vision of democratic transformation where men and women act deliberatively and collectively to alter their estate. Do you believe Clarence Thomas is, I know this is hyperbole, uh, do you believe Clarence Thomas is ushering in the end of America? How, how is Thomas such a threat to civil rights, black freedom, transformative collective democracy, and equality? I mean, Thomas um, is both, uh, uh, you know, a symbol, I think, of the threat, because some of these things have already been done, uh, but also would like to spearhead it further. So, for instance... Thomas is extraordinarily skeptical about the value of voting rights for African-Americans. He wants African-Americans to get out of the business of electoral politics because he thinks it's a fool's errand. Um, And unfortunately, um, you know, there have been declining rates of participation among African-Americans alongside efforts uh, to disenfranchise them on the part of the Republican Party. Um, And, you know, that uh, voting rights are important, not just, again, for the moral purpose of having an abstract right to vote, uh, but because, you know, the most successful movement uh, on behalf of African Americans in this country uh, as an electoral proposition was the Republican Party of the 1850s, which people forget was a mass movement that was, in fact, um, and this is somewhat controversial, but I think the historiography bears this out, dedicated to ultimately to the abolition of, of enslavement of African Americans. Um, so voting rights are critical in a democracy uh, for taking on, um, you know, the, 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 the subjugation and oppressions that exist within, within that democracy and make it somewhat less than a democracy. This gets back to that Supreme Court issue we talked about at the beginning. You know, liberals tend to want to rely on the courts for a lot of this stuff. But in the end, the most successful movements of transformation, the most successful transformations don't come from the courts. In fact, the courts often resist them. It's from mass movements. And um, Thomas is a teacher uh, and a prophet and a progenitor of despair, of racial despair, uh, and particularly of the idea that racial conditions can be transformed through politics. And that is a belief that I think... um, really is, transcends, as I said, race. I think it's, it's very, I mean, the battles we're having now about climate change, or forget climate, health care, you know, where all you hear from the center and from liberal centrists is, oh, uh, you're not going to ever get that through the Senate. You know, the civil rights movement, if it took that attitude, you're never going to get it through the Senate, we would have never had the Civil Rights Acts of 1964 or of 1957. Uh, because, of course, the Senate has always been the graveyard of progressive legislation. But you can't, you know, to make that your boundary condition for anything you propose is a death warrant. It's a, it's a death sentence. And if we're going to say that about health care or a public option or minimal health care reform, how in the world do you think you're going to take on something like legal segregation? Um, uh, uh, sorry, you know, res- residential segregation. Right. You yeah, know, school well, segregation. One of the things I was thinking about when I was reading uh, your book was and it's a fascinating book, was despair as a political strategy for the right. It was, it just, it was very 
depressing. It gave me a lot of despair. You write, yeah. uh, Thomas's jurisprudence may be a bitter mix of right-wing revanchism and black nationalism, but it is distinctively American and of the moment. It begins with the belief that racism is permanent, the state is ineffective, and politics is feeble, and ends with a dystopia that looks painfully familiar, men armed to the teeth, people locked up in jails, money ruling all, and racial conflict as far as the eye can see. It reflects the anxious aspiration and curdled disappointment of a society that spent the better part of the 20th century trying to overcome white supremacy and the Gilded Age, only to see their rehabilitation in the 21st century. How important is Thomas's role through his decisions when it comes to a rise of or a return of white supremacy? Does does his jurisprudence show that he supports or opposes white supremacy? Um, I think it shows that he believes in its permanence. Um, I don't think it supports his opposition to it. By that you mean that he wants to give the state and um, uh, electoral movements the tools to dismantle it, um, because he doesn't believe it's possible. Um, And he thinks, again, that that's a fool's errand. Um, So I think his, his opinions reveal both a very bleak belief in the persistence of white supremacy. I mean, some of his arguments about the persistence of racism you will not find in any other Supreme Court justice, whether liberal or conservative. Um, Like I say, they're very, very bleak. Um, And he is becoming, I mean, for many years he was sort of writing solo dissents, but now with the rise of Kavanaugh and uh, Gorsuch, um, there is a five-person lock on the Supreme Court. They don't have to appeal to Anthony Kennedy anymore. Thomas is also the most senior justice, uh, the longest-serving justice on the current Supreme Court, and that means that if he and Roberts ever find themselves on opposite sides, Thomas gets to assign the opinion. Um, and, you know, he is, this is his moment. Um, for many years, his opinions were not um, really considered, but increasingly in law schools, um, people are reading them because they know what the scholar, uh, the Yale professor Akhil Reed Amar said back in 2011, which is, you know, that basically Thomas, I hate this kind of sports terminology, but he plays the long game. Uh, He sets down the markers and then waits as people move slowly, inch slowly, closer and closer to his view. Uh, And that's, you know, that is where we are now. The court has moved to him. He has not moved uh, toward the court as it was before. Corey, one last question for you. We've been speaking with political science scholar Corey Robin, author of The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. Corey was on our show back in 2011, and he was on our show two years ago, almost to the day. You can hear our most recent interview with Corey at our website, thisishell.com. You can follow Corey on Twitter at Corey Robin, and you can find out more about him at his website, CoreyRobin.com. One last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests, Corey, and as we've done with you a few times in the past, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or likely this is the category you'll fall under. Our audience will hate your response. You write, racism is now thought to be an immutable and intractable as race once was. It is a social current that courses so far beneath our feet as to lie beyond our grasp. It powers the whole in a way that cannot be done away with. It yields a vision of politics that sees our agency, our room for action and maneuver, as radically constrained. It explains and forecasts defeat. Will race be the inevitable undoing of the United States? And was that unavoidable from the beginning when it was not addressed by the writers of the Constitution? Did allowing slavery 
mean the U.S. was eventually unsustainable? Well, certainly the U.S., as it was constituted in the Constitution, was unsustainable, and I think that's what the Civil War and Reconstruction were all about. Um, The Constitution really changed in fundamental, dramatic ways that nobody ever had thought possible beforehand. Um, And that's what I kind of look to. You know, I think people on the left think that um, the left's uh, wisdom is embodied in the notion that people are oppressed and the person at the bottom loses, always loses. And the truth of the matter, that's not where the left begins. That's, that, that's what every oppressed, that's what every society has always thought, is that the person at the bottom you know, gets the short end of the stick and will never get better. The left's principle is that that, in fact, is not the eternal truth of society, that that is a contingent truth that was created by politics, by institutions, by economics. And if it was created by human beings, it can be uncreated by them. That's the left principle, is the plasticity, um, the, uh, the, 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 the way in which social relations can be altered by the concerted action of men and women uh, rising up. Uh, and so, you know, that remains my firm conviction. And if the left loses that, it hasn't become more left. It hasn't become more progressive. It has joined a chorus uh, of oppressed people um, who never thought they could do anything about their life and of conservatives who have always said to anybody who ever thought tried to alter something, um, ultimately, the strongest conservative argument has always been uh, what the, the social theorist Albert Hirschman called futility, that what you are trying to do by altering your estate is absolutely pointless and futile. Uh, and it, once the left goes there, um, I think then we have lost. Corey, I cannot thank you enough for being back on our show. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. Make sure that you go out and get Corey's new book, The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. Thank you so much for being back on our show, and I look forward to having you on again in the future. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Enjoyed it. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history starting on October 9th, 1740, 279 years ago, on the island of Java in the Dutch East Indies, now Indonesia. Dutch colonial troops and Javanese collaborators joined forces to put down a large-scale revolt by thousands of Chinese immigrants in the bustling port city of Batavia, known today as Jakarta. Wait, Jakarta was called Batavia? Great, now i got to look this up. Let's see. Batavia was a land inhabited by the Batavian people during the Roman Empire, an area that is today part of the Netherlands. And I always thought Batavia was German. Go figure. Though most of Jakarta slash Batavia's ethnic Chinese toiled for low wages in the area's massive sugar refining industry, many had established themselves as prosperous artisans and merchants. This had triggered resentment among the Javanese and the Dutch, resulting in Chinese people being harassed and deported because there's nothing that's hated in capitalism more than the other who were meant to be exploited actually being successful at capitalism. Boy, that's one thing people do not like. Meanwhile, a global decline in sugar prices had dealt a major blow to the local economy, inflaming ethnic tensions even further. Groups of Chinese workers finally began rioting and burning down the sugar mills, and after an incident in which 50 Dutch soldiers were killed, the Dutch responded with massive force. The next two weeks were a bloodbath in which some 10,000 mostly unarmed ethnic Chinese, from infants to the elderly, were burned to death and slaughtered in the streets. 
so weird that colonialism would treat immigrants so badly when the colonialists themselves are immigrants of a sort and that they are conquerors and occupiers. It's kind of, kind of immigration, I guess. About 500 Dutch troops also died in the fighting. Local sugar industry was devastated and would need 20 years to fully recover. Meanwhile, the Javanese would switch sides, joining forces with Chinese rebels in an unsuccessful two-year battle to expel the Dutch from the Indies. This has been a public service announcement from Rotten History, reminding you, no matter how cool you think the Dutch in Amsterdam is now, with all that legal weed and hash... They were complete a-holes for a very long time. Who the hell comes up with a world-dominating tulip market? I'll tell you who. Evil Dutch capitalist colonialist jagoffs, that's who. You ever look at the top of a box of Dutch master cigars? Look at those smug pricks. It's amazing the power herb can have over a country, in this case, turning evil Holland into at least a little less violent Netherlands. I'm pretty sure that's why their empire fell. I'm, I'm almost certain it was because they all got high. But I'm positive I wrote that while high. In Rotten History, October 12th, 1960, 59 years ago, Japanese legis- legislator Inejiro Asanuma, a former right-winger disillusioned by World War II, had reinvented himself as a leftist and had raised eyebrows by visiting the People's Republic of China, publicly praising Mao Zedong and criticizing Japan's post-war relations with the United States. Raised eyebrows? More like red flags, and I'm not making some commie joke here. A right-winger before the Second World War. Says the war made him change his thinking on being a fascist? Yeah, no kidding it did. I think that was the whole point of the war, to get fascists like this guy to see the error of their ways, not to welcome them as somehow born-again leftists. Now, as leader of the Japan Socialist Party, Inejiro was participating in a televised political debate in Tokyo during an election campaign for Japan's national diet or legislature. And no, they're not eating their legislature. It's not like Soylent Green lawmakers. The Japanese legislature is called a diet. As Inejiro spoke at the podium in response to a question, a 17-year-old anti-Western ultranationalist named Otoya Yamaguchi suddenly rushed onto the stage with a traditional samurai sword, ran directly at Inejiro and plunged the footlong blade into his midsection, killing him. See what happens when socialists allow former right-wingers into their mixed? Yamaguchi was immediately subdued and arrested. In the days that followed, thousands of demonstrators took to the streets of Tokyo, demanding the resignation of the city's police chief, while the Japanese national television network, NHK, was criticized for repeatedly broadcasting videotape of the assassination. So it was like Japan's OJ. Three weeks later, Yamaguchi hanged himself with a torn bedsheet in his jail cell, which we now call an Epstein, after using toothpaste to write a message on the wall praising the Japanese emperor and displaying beautiful calligraphy considering he was using toothpaste, and not the store-bought kind, but the kind they give you in prison with those mystery chunks in it. A news photo of the assassination won a Pulitzer Prize, and Yamaguchi is claimed uh, as a hero to this day by neo-fascists and alt-right activists. See you moron in Jiro. Even when you leave the right and go left, the right will kill you and then co-opt your legacy despite you being having abandoned it. Like all of the right who were proven wrong about fascism by World War II would have been best for all of us if you would have just gone away. In Rotten History, October 10th, 1973, 46 years ago, Spiro T. Agnew, Vice President of the United States under President Richard Nixon, was forced to resign as part of a plea deal on a charge of income tax evasion. 
looking at you, President Trump, or more so at Ivanka, who can't get impeached but can go to jail for embezzling money from the inauguration. Agnew, formerly governor of Maryland for two years, has had also been charged by a federal district attorney with extortion, conspiracy, and accepting more than $100,000 in bribes while holding public office. Sheesh. Cheap date. Hundreds of thousands. Dude, you're the vice president. Get millions. Agnew's resignation came amid mounting revelations about the actions of Nixon administration officials in the Watergate cover-up. If only Mike Pence would take a bribe. Agnew claimed that the federal charges against him were just Nixon's attempt to create a public distraction from the Watergate scandal. That's how horrible the Nixon administration was. The vice president was making claims that his tax evasion was all a ruse by the president to make the vice president look bad. Even Trump's administration ain't that awful. Agnew was later disbarred and forced to pay the state of Maryland more than a quarter million dollars in restitution in line with the 25th Amendment. Congress chose House Minority Leader Gerald Ford as new vice president. So if it happened today and both Pence and Trump went down, the next president would be, good Lord, that bag of something not human, Kevin McCarthy. Ford would become president the following year after Nixon resigned to avoid impeachment and would grant... Nixon a presidential pardon, which sounds a lot like what a President McCarthy would do for both Trump and Pence. Now that was really rotten history, and this is hell on the bonus hour of This Is Hell this week during our Patreon podcast, which we streamed live exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. I finally did what some listeners have been begging me to do for years, admit it, fess up to exactly what my politics really truly are. Therefore, with thanks to conversations we've had with Ibram X. Kendi, Zilla Eisenstein, and Jody Dean, I now can and did on this week's Patreon podcast. So if you want to know precisely where my political leanings lie... Lean? Lie? I don't know. Then sign up to the This Is Hell podcast at, on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Following my political confession, we also shared an interview from our 23-year archive of on-air conversations. This week's featured discussion unearthed from our vast catalog is our September 2005 on-air conversation with Norman Finkelstein, author of Beyond Chutzpah, on the misuse of anti-Semitism and the abuse of history. At the time, Norman was still assistant professor of political science at Chicago's DePaul University. It would be another two years before Norman was forced to resign. Over his views on Israel, views he expresses throughout our discussion that we shared this week, and Norman was forced out of his job by that censoring freak, Alan Dershowitz. But the only way to hear any of that is to subscribe at patreon.com slash thisishell. Thanks for joining us as new subscribers. This week goes out to Edson, Robert, Gomi, and Casey to show our thanks for becoming new subscribers. They'll each get This Is Hell advertising stickers so they can subvert public ads. And they'll get special specials on gifts from our site at thisishell.com when you click on support just for signing up. Live from Hangover Country, This Is Hell. Hey, Alex, who is on Mondays live? One hour, This Is Hell, streaming at thisishell.com at 10 a.m. Chicago time and podcast at the same place shortly after our live stream. Now we're going to have Madeline Schwartz on to talk about her New York Review of books, a piece inside the deportation courts, uh, which is a uh, grim stuff. Yeah, you think it's really, really depressing. Who knew deportation courts at the border would be so awful? And who's on the two-hour live streaming? This is held Tuesday, beginning at 2 p.m. Uh, we're going to be talking to Andrea Boyles, who wrote the book, You Can't Stop the Revolution, Community Disorder and Social Ties in Post-Ferguson America. And then also we'll have Jenny Brown on to talk about her book, Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now. And finally, what about Wednesday's live one-hour stream beginning at 10 a.m., uh, just like Monday? 
uh, real excited for this is Henrik Mathiasen will be on to talk about his uh, piece for the Dark Mountain Project, Cowboy Nation, Norway's Wild West Fantasy. All four hours will then have their world broadcast premiere next Saturday morning on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago Sound Experiment, in our regular 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. local time slot. Thanks to everyone who came out for our weekly Wednesday meet and greet. This is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's Little India neighborhood. Thanks to Leo, Ben, Wally, Pete, Brian, Nora, Lisa, Tom, John, Johnny, Elliot, Shelley, Jordan, and everyone else who hung out with us. But I don't remember because more than a meet and greet, this is Hell Office hours are a think and drink with the emphasis on drink join us any each and every wednesday evening at carrie's lounge 2251 west devon the bar downstairs from this here studio and you're going to want to be here at this week's office hours next week's i should say because we will be celebrating our first week of doing weekday shows in our new regular schedule i'm your bitter blind broke gap toothed radio show host chuck mertz producing this week's show is alex uh, Jerry, thanks to Alex for producing. Thanks to Ronaldo for Rotten History and this week's Hangover Cure. Thanks to Corey Robin for being this week's guest. He is author of the new book, Enigma of The Enigma of Clarence Thomas. And this week's Hangover Cure is Panatone. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. The only way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show is to sit down in the lo- lotus position, turn your palms towards the sky, focus on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and say the simple words, everybody. He's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.